This is an ABC podcast. Three days before his invasion of Ukraine began, Russian President Vladimir Putin did one of his favourite things humiliate the people who work for him. Putin sat at a desk on one side of the massive circular Catherine Hall in the Kremlin. On the other side of the hall, his security council, 29 men and one woman, were facing him sitting on chairs, looking like schoolchildren. Putin announced his plan to recognise two separatist-held areas of Ukraine as being their own independent countries, and then send in troops to help defend the people living there. And he invited various of his military and indeed intelligence advisers to speak. He asked them to come up one by one and agree with him. Sorry, to uh, give their honest view on whether his plan was a good one. Most of them did. Some of them started suggesting that maybe they should wait. Putin basically told the first one who tried this to stay in his lane. The second one started suggesting Putin should maybe meet with Joe Biden before doing it, but after catching a glimpse of Putin's stare, he said that was pointless. Then a third man got up. And he actually snarled and put down his chief intelligence advisor. Putin demanded his head of intelligence say whether he supported the plan. Yes or no. Speak plainly, he demanded. Come on, don't you have a point of view? You know, get on with it. Putin told the man what he was meant to say. The man said it, Putin laughed, and the man sat down. It sends a clear message. Putin is the decision maker. But having ultimate power means you also have ultimate responsibility. Which is fine if things go your way. He's basically got away with everything that he's done in his career in foreign policy terms until now. But now... As we enter the 10th month since the invasion, it's clear Vladimir Putin's war has been a disaster. The entire invasion strategy was bad, and his understanding of the Russian army's capabilities was bad. His assessment of Russia's ability to absorb sanctions was bad. His understanding of how Ukrainian, the Ukrainian population felt, was bad. We're now in uncharted waters because we don't know, and I'm not sure even he has really figured out how he's going to react to this this situation which has never occurred before for him. Vladimir Putin decided to start this war. He backed himself into this corner. He just doesn't know how to get out. I'm Matt Bevan and this is the final episode of this season of Russia If You're Listening. There are many ways the war between Russia and Ukraine could end. Ukraine could keep fighting for its survival and push the Russians out completely. Things could change in Europe or America. The West could get sick of the whole thing and stop sending weapons, forcing Ukraine into a stalemate or to the negotiation table to surrender land and people. Or Putin could give up, either because he's forced to or because he's forced out. So today... As we enter the 10th month of the conflict and winter sets in, what may finally stop the bloodshed in Ukraine? It's safe to say that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is not currently in the mood for a friendly chat with Vladimir Putin. Ukraine demands punishment 
for trying to steal our territory. Punishment for the murders of thousands of people. Punishment for torches and humiliations of women and men. Any suggestion at all that he sits down to discuss a compromise to end the war is immediately rejected. We can return the Ukrainian flag to our entire territory. We can do it with the force of arms. Zelensky wants a total Ukrainian victory. This means taking back every single inch of Ukrainian land, and that includes the land Russia annexed back in 2014. That's large parts of the Donbass in the country's east and all of Crimea. He says the Russian war against Ukraine and all of free Europe started in Crimea and it must end with its liberation. This seems far more likely now than it did only a few months ago. And it's down to a very technical military term. Ukraine has achieved irreversible momentum. Push Russia back on every front. Steal their guns and ammo and use that to push them back even further. Irreversible momentum, like an accelerating snowball. And if you're fighting a war, it's what you want to hear, especially from a guy like retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. I am the former commander of US Army Europe. As Ukraine's army wins fight after fight, he told ABC News Daily that they're now in a position where Russia will need a miracle to stop them. It's too early to plan victory parades, but they have achieved irreversible momentum and that Russian Federation forces are losing in almost every aspect of this conflict. They've now liberated more than half the territory Russia had occupied. They've liberated entire cities. And then, in the days that follow, comes inevitable evidence of the terrible things Russian forces did to the people living in each town. That in turn only gives the Ukrainian forces more momentum. They gather resolve to push harder. But despite the massive successes this year that many thought impossible and the terrible price tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers have had to pay, large parts of Ukraine remain under Russian occupation. I want to take you to a city that remains out of Ukraine's grasp, but not out of their mind, to give you a sense of what Ukraine is fighting for. I've never been to Mariupol, but from what I've heard about it, it's a lot like my hometown of Newcastle in New South Wales. The city is famous for two things, steel and beaches. It's the place where I went to the seashore for the first time. This is Ukrainian philosopher Mikhailo Minikov. I was three years old and I remember this joy of swimming in a warm sea on the sand beach, even though it's a huge metallurgic city. So in the photo that in my family album, I'm staying on the beach and behind you can see the pipes of the metallurgic plant. So it's a tricky place. Mariupol is the largest port city on the Sea of Azov, which is the world's shallowest sea. It's a maximum of 14 metres deep, which means in the summer, the water temperature can get up to 29 degrees, which is extremely warm. Mikhailo has visited several times throughout his life. That's a city without any ethnic majority. It's so much inter-ethnic. And with very specific industrial post-Soviet mentality. It's got an interesting mix of cuisine. And in the very centre of town is a big drama theatre. 
The skyline is dominated by the city's two giant steelworks, and I mean giant. Each one is five times the size of the old BHP steelworks in Newcastle. It's a special place in a very unfortunate location. Those steelworks are very valuable, as is the port they export the steel from. Plus, it's only 40 kilometres from the Russian border. The city has been attacked over and over, including only eight years before this invasion. In 2014, when Russian-backed separatists took control of Donetsk, they attempted to take Mariupol as well. There's been more bloodshed in Ukraine, this time on the streets of Mariupol in the southeast. It was a taste of what was to come. And now here in Mariupol, where about 20-plus people died, There were battles in the streets between the Ukrainian army and Russian-backed rebels. Rebels claimed the city hall shortly after government troops had cleared them out. The local population was split. Many said the Ukrainian Prime Minister and his American backers were to blame. The USA, they kill our people. And some backed the rebels. This woman is shouting, who wants to live in Ukraine? Nobody. We want to come back home to Russia. The city was divided. But then something extraordinary happened. The workers from the city's two giant steel plants formed a local militia and drove out the rebels themselves. They cleaned up the mess caused by the fighting and then went back to work at the steel mills. Mariupol remained part of Ukraine, but was still vulnerable. The separatists continued to bombard it from afar, but Mariupol stayed together. Ukrainian-Canadian global affairs analyst Michael Bosakiu visited the city after the 2014 attack. We went there because the Russian thugs had sent um, missiles close to that area. He found that the people there were struggling. I still have pictures in my iPhone library of these kids in a playground that we had uh, visited. And these kids and these teachers were still pretty traumatised. When the invasion began this year, Mariupol was one of the first places attacked. Aside from being a large, strategically important port city, Vladimir Putin alleged it was a hotbed of neo-Nazis. That came as a surprise to the hundreds of Jews who had fled from the Russian-backed separatists to Mariupol in 2014. This time the attack wasn't from lightly armed separatists, though. It was from the artillery of the Russian army. The army put the city under a terrible siege. The mayor there is saying that their city is being flattened and there's fears that hundreds have have been killed. The 16-year-old boy was injured in a blast near a school. Hospital staff can't take it anymore. More than 1,200 bodies have been collected from the streets. Many locals sheltered in the big drama theatre in the centre of town. They wrote children on the ground outside, hoping to stop Russia attacking them. It didn't work. Local officials say more than a 1,000 civilians had been sheltering in this theatre some time before Russian forces dropped a powerful bomb. Thousands of people were being rushed to hospital. And then the Russians started bombing the hospitals. Mariupol's maternity hospital was shelled by Russian forces. Thousands had fled to other parts of Ukraine. Thousands were dead. Thousands more were forced to board trains into Russia. It's very much ruined. It's wounded, it's destroyed, with a big part, like at least half of population, still uh, missing, killed. Many have been um, sent to remote areas, and that, of course, brought back uh, memories of the Gulag uh, during Soviet times. 
This time the onslaught was far too big to be held off by the local steelworkers, though they did try. After weeks of fighting, the Ukrainian forces, steelworkers and some of their families were holed up in one of the city's two giant steelworks. Thousands of people lived in the 36 bomb shelters under the steel mills for weeks, fighting the Russians in between the maze of machinery, coke ovens and blast furnaces. Finally, after nearly three months of battle, Mariupol fell. I, I can't recognise it anymore compared to the, you know, the pictures and the videos we've seen. It's absolutely horrific, uh, as if kind of carpet bombing had taken place. Having flattened large areas of the city, Russia started making plans to stay there long term. They've put a big fence up around the ruin of the drama theatre to hide it. They've demolished damaged apartment buildings and have started building new ones. The Russian occupiers are now moving fast to rebuild residential areas in the decimated city of Mariupol. On the Ukrainian rail network, Mariupol is the end of the line. It's as far away as you can get from the capital Kiev before you end up in Russia. By mid-May, it was totally occupied by Russians. It's the largest city conquered by Russia this year. It's still a ruin. Putin claims it's now part of his empire. For Ukrainians, it's a symbol of everything they've lost and a goal to reach for. If, and to be honest, it is a big if, but if they can win it back, it means Ukraine will have liberated all of the territory Russia has taken in the 2022 invasion. Already the Ukrainian government is selling tickets for the first passenger train back to Mariupol. They're that confident it will happen. But the big question is, what will they do next? Why stop if you're winning? Remember, Volodymyr Zelensky is thinking big. We can return the Ukrainian flag to our entire territory. When he says entire territory, he means everything Russia's taken since 2014. Right back to the borders you see on a map. That's all of Donetsk, Luhansk and Crimea. General Ben Hodges says it's just a matter of time. They will liberate Crimea by next summer. Next summer, meaning the middle of 2023. Now, this would be a truly incredible outcome for Ukraine and a truly devastating one for Putin. And winning a war against a much more powerful invading foreign military is more common than you might think. The US and Soviet Union have both been defeated by Afghan insurgents. The US has also been defeated by Vietnamese rice farmers. But is that really what's going to happen here? The head of the US military, General Mark Milley, doesn't think it's likely in the foreseeable future. The probability of a Ukrainian military victory defined as kicking the Russians out of all of Ukraine to include what they define or what they claim as Crimea, to the probability of that happening anytime soon is not high, militarily. Pushing Russia all the way out of Ukraine for good would take time, and it would be very costly in both money and lives. Ukraine says it's up for the fight. But it isn't just up to the Ukrainians and Vladimir Zelensky. It's also up to Ukraine's international supporters. They may ask him to settle for less, and he may have to take it. One of the huge reasons Ukraine has been so successful in this war so far is because of their people's willingness to fight. 
It surprised everyone, from analysts to Putin. They're in it to the end. All of them actually are prepared to sacrifice their lives for the Ukrainian nation, for the Ukrainian state. They run towards the battle, not from it. But being brave isn't enough when you're up against the might of the Russian army. It may have shown itself to be bumbling, corrupt and bureaucratic, but it still has guns, ammo and armour that have killed tens of thousands of soldiers and thousands of civilians. But Ukraine isn't alone. They're fighting with help from their international supporters. At the moment, that help is freely flowing. About 30 countries are chipping in. But the biggest supplier of military assistance to Ukraine by far is the United States. Since Joe Biden took office, the US has sent them more than $20 billion worth of military assistance. They've sent some of the most advanced weaponry the US military-industrial complex has created. While the last 20 years may have shown us that US-made weapons aren't hugely effective against insurgents hiding in Afghan caves, they are incredibly effective against Russian tanks. But despite the success stories, Ukraine has a bit of a potential problem with its reliance on the United States. For starters, they're using a lot of stuff, and the US can only send them so much. Take your good old-fashioned artillery, for example. I'm not talking about fancy satellite-guided ones, I'm talking about the basic kind. Bombs being fired out of big guns. Almost unchanged since World War I. Most of what Ukraine is firing at Russia is known as 155mm shells. The United States has provided almost half a million rounds of 155 artillery. These things are about the size of an adult leg and weigh 45 kilos. They can be fired about 18 kilometres. When you fire one, it sounds like this. And when it hits the ground, it explodes into nearly 2,000 pieces of shrapnel, making a sound like this. The US defence industry makes 500 of these per day. But Ukraine is firing around 10 times that many every day. Now, you don't need to be a maths genius to realise that doesn't add up. More shells go boom than are currently being made. So America's ability to supply Ukraine with ammunition is not infinite. And even if it was, there's the next small issue. American politics. We've watched tens of billions of dollars be sent to defend another nation's border that is not our own. A growing group of Republican congressmen and women are asking for support for Ukraine to be cut back or stopped altogether. And it's high time to stop sending any more money. Don't send another penny to Ukraine and to start auditing where the money went. These Republicans are spinning evidence-free conspiracy theories suggesting the money meant for Ukraine is actually going into American political campaigns. Was that helping Democrat campaigns? Was that helping Democrat candidates get elected? At the moment, the number of Republicans holding this view is pretty small. But occasionally, they're joined by this guy. If the United States has $40 billion to send to Ukraine, we should be able to do whatever it takes to keep our children safe at home. In early December, polling was released by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs on US attitudes to the war in Ukraine. They found that while Americans still strongly supported Ukraine, half of them now say Joe Biden should urge Ukraine to settle for peace as soon as possible, even if it means they'll lose some of their territory. So whether Zelensky can count on America to support a push into Crimea and Donbass may depend on how America is feeling at the time. 
So what would happen if America changed its mind? It's time for a bunch of hypotheticals. I know politicians say they hate them, but we're not politicians, so I'm sure that we can cope. Picture this. America gives Ukraine an ultimatum. Stop advancing or we stop sending bullets. Russia knows Ukraine won't advance. Both sides dig in. And then nothing. Nothing else changes. Russia would continue to occupy whatever land they held at the time. Ukraine would be divided and parts would remain occupied, but they would just have to cop it. The conflict is frozen. Putin biographer Philip Short thinks this could be a reasonably good option. I think it's probably the best foreseeable outcome to the war in Ukraine would be an armistice. In other words, not a peace agreement, because with Zelensky in power and Putin in power, I think a peace agreement is not going to happen. A peace agreement would be a proper end to the war with the redrawing of borders and everything. An armistice is just an agreement to stop shooting each other. So Putin could say, well, look, we've consolidated our position in the Donbass. And the Americans could say, well, we stopped them going any further. They wanted to take over the whole of Ukraine. They weren't able to do that. They could both claim victory. Why is this option potentially better than pushing Russia all the way out of Crimea and Donbass? Well, apart from saving Western countries some money, pushing Russia out may make Putin reach for something Ukraine doesn't have. I hate to mention this because it is a bit of a downer, but the thing I'm talking about is in his suitcase. The suitcase containing the codes that control the nuclear arsenal. Nuclear weapons raise the prospect of a rapid escalation to World War III. Putin knows this, so he'd probably only use nuclear weapons as an absolute last resort. I think there are other things he'd try first. Attacks on Western energy infrastructure, underwater pipelines. Russia has the ability to really mess the world up in order to make the cost of supporting Ukraine too high to bear. Nuclear weapons are a truly nightmare scenario. But we're in a scenario where we have an unstoppable force in Zelensky and an immovable object in Putin. Neither want to give in. Neither will concede defeat. But what if Putin wasn't there anymore? What if he had an accident? What if he was persuaded to fall down some stairs? There's been a terrible epidemic of falling out of windowosis and fell off my speedboat-itis in Russia lately. What if that happened to him? Yes, I'm saying what happens if someone assassinates him. It doesn't have to be that. But what if the immovable object is removed from power? For Russia, there's a common joke about their leaders called the bald, hairy theory. For the last 200 years, the leadership of Russia has alternated from balding men to hairy men and back. The last four Tsars were Nicholas I, bald, Alexander II, hairy, Alexander III, bald, Nicholas II, hairy. Then the Soviet leaders, bald Lenin, hairy Stalin, bald Khrushchev, hairy Brezhnev, bald Gorbachev, then hairy Yeltsin, and now bald Putin. I don't know whether Putin knows about this rule, but I like to think that he's a little warier around hairy potential successors. But hairy or not, Putin worries a lot about losing power. Of all those bald and hairy men, most died in office of natural causes. But one was assassinated, 
two were overthrown in revolutions and one in a coup. Only hairy Boris Yeltsin has been able to successfully hand over power to a successor, Putin. But Vladimir Putin is different from his bald and hairy predecessors. Former top Australian intelligence official Paul Dibb says in the past, the country was usually run by a group of people. At least in the Soviet period, they had a politburo, a political bureau, if you like, a cabinet of other ministers and senior communist leaders. But that's not how Putin rolls. He is virtually a one-man band, surrounded by an ever-diminishing circle of former intelligence officers who, I'm afraid, given his bad temper and vindictiveness, tell him what he wants to hear. Philip Short says that according to Putin's first chief of staff, Alexander Voloshin, this has been the message for 22 years. And Voloshin said from the moment he became president, he decides and no one else. The idea that Putin is part of a team, I, I think, is just completely out of the window. If you had pretty absolute discretion in decision-making for 20 years, you pay less and less attention to what other people say. Experts say the country runs in two modes, autopilot and manual control. Basically, things usually run on autopilot, with people guessing what Putin wants done and doing that. Occasionally, when it's something very important, Putin switches to manual control and intervenes personally. The obvious problem with that is, what about when a lot of things start happening all at once and all of them are very important? Professor Daniel Treisman, a political scientist from the University of California, says this is the biggest threat to Putin. In the short run, we shouldn't expect any attempted coup or conspiracy against him or any kind of imminent uh, collapse of the regime. In the longer run, what I would look for more is the combination of different destabilizing factors. The economy deteriorating dramatically, public unrest about that perhaps, and simultaneously conflicts within the elite. Putin has been trying to shift the blame for the deteriorating situation in Ukraine onto the military elite. He said that the very unpopular mobilisation of troops was the defence minister's idea. He's made generals who lost control of important cities announce their failure on television. But that's hard when he's portrayed himself so effectively as the ultimate decision maker. Already there's some sense of behind-the-scenes conflicts between different parts of the security services and the armed forces, uh, all of whom are upset with the fact that the war isn't going better and that uh, it, it wasn't well planned or the troops haven't been well provisioned. The whole thing has led to an increase in solidarity between Western countries that he's been trying to undermine for years. The NATO military alliance he hates so much is growing. So if the discontent or, or, or disagreements at the elite level coincide with growing public unrest, then I think that creates a situation where the Kremlin might make foolish decisions which exacerbate the situation. Putin may see the elites and the public angry at him at the same time, but he can't focus on that because he's got a crumbling economy and a foreign war to deal with. So we could, some months in the future, see a kind of meltdown of the current regime with perhaps unpredictable consequences. Perhaps this is how it all ends. A meltdown of snowballing crises leading to a regime collapse. 
U.S. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges agrees. So the quote from Hemingway from uh, The Sun Also Rises is where the two guys are talking to each other and one of them asks the other, how did you go bankrupt? And the other guy answers, uh, gradually and then suddenly. And I think that that captures uh, what I believe is going to happen inside the Russian Federation over the next probably couple of years, that the Russian Federation is, there are centrifugal forces at work that are going to pull it apart. The size of the pile in Vladimir Putin's in-tray, if Crimea is liberated, is just unimaginable. A man living in an impenetrable fortress with 5,000 nuclear weapons under his control, supported only by yes-men, being metaphorically crushed under a pile of urgent messages. It's hard to imagine that's how the mighty Vladimir Putin's story will end. He's always managed to find a way out when he's cornered like a rat by a boy with a stick. But as many experts and world leaders have said, it's hard to see how this war can end well with Putin still in the Kremlin. While Putin sits in comfort, surrounded by yes-men, working on what to do next, tens of millions of people will just have to wait and suffer. Russia has recently destroyed most of the electricity infrastructure in Ukraine, meaning millions will be suffering through a long, cold winter in the dark, with no heating. Millions of Ukrainian refugees are in precarious living situations around the world, unsure when, if ever, they'll be able to return home. A million Russians who fled from Putin are holed up in surrounding countries, trying to make a life for themselves in exile. Thousands of civilians are dead. Even more soldiers have been killed or wounded on both sides. Cities and towns like Mariupol are in ruin. And all of this because of one man's catastrophic ignorance. Some think that an end is in sight. I hope they're right. This season of Russia, if you're listening, was written by me, Matt Bevan. Our series producers are Yasmin Parry and Will Ockenden. Our podcast lead is Eric George, and our managing editor is Tanya Nolan. A big thanks to Jess O'Callaghan and the ABC Archives Department. Remember, you can find me on Twitter, at Matthew Bevan, and if you like this season, you can leave a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. But the best thing you can do is tell a friend about this season and go back and listen to our older stuff, if you haven't already. Merry Christmas. See you next year.